Howdy, howdy, howdy. Hello and welcome. So glad you're here. It is Sunday, July 5, 2020. Progressive News Network. Um, wow. Yikes. Yikes. What a week. That's uh, that's what we've got to talk about this tonight for the show. Um, I hope everybody had a happy July 4. Um, I hope your pets made it through another Independence Day without losing their furry little minds. Mine did not. I mean, they made it through, but <clears throat> one of them lost her little mind. Um, happens every July 4. Uh, tonight. Oh, my God. What a great show we have tonight. Tonight we have uh, Carter Krishnire is here to talk about covid and sports so we've got um uh basketball and soccer opening up in orlando this weekend starting this weekend and uh you know we're wondering you know if these are going to become super spreader events now these these uh events are without audience um they're they're for broadcast only but uh it still takes a lot of people gathered together to do to put on a sporting event, and all of those people are being uh, exposed to uh, whether they, and then they don't know if they're if they're safe to be exposed to or not, just like the rest of us. Uh, and uh, so Carter's going to talk about that. Then Janine Moloff will join us at 8:30, talking about the criminalization of dissent which is kind of a theme that she has been on for a while and it's a good one. And we keep having more to talk about with regard to the criminalization of dissent. This week we had uh, that uh, fiasco up at um, Mount Rushmore. Uh, Just what an embarrassment. So looking forward to that. Janine Moloff at 8.30. Of course, Cardick will be here at 7.30 to talk about all things COVID, all things Florida. Um, I am, whoa, you know, that's so much to talk about tonight. Before we start, though, uh, if you can and if you feel like it, if you're so inclined, uh Check out the show notes. I've got a link there for that says support PNN with a one-time donation. So once a year, we renew our uh, license with Blog Talk Radio, and that costs, uh, shoot, I don't know, four hundred dollars. It's something like that a year. So once a year, we ask for our listeners to help us out defray that cost. If you can afford a couple of bucks, just, you know, consider it buying us a, a cup of coffee and we will put that towards our fund to fund the channel. Um, and we don't do this uh, any other time of year. This is just something that we do in the middle of summer as we approach this uh, renewal date. Um, let's see. I've got a lot to talk to you about. It's um, it's been a while, but uh, let's uh, kick this off with a little nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty on some stuff. It's so appropriate um, to lead in with uh, that little piece of music. Um, so a couple things I want to talk to you guys about that I think is real important for you to know about this week. And the first is Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested. She was taken into custody on Thursday. And somewhere here I have... Uh, the details on that for you. Um, but I wanted to make sure that tonight, instead of going deep into details, that we expanded on some of the uh, situation that this has created, knowing about this. And I will flush that out here in a second. I also want to get to uh, a little bit on Bounty Gate and uh, and what that means for y'all. Now, <clears throat> a, 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 a new a new in quotation marks new new writer to me. I mean, I've been following her for a while, but she's not like the uh, um, uh, storied you know folks that that we all know the name. She's not a household name yet, um, but she's she's good enough. She's she is on her way, and that is Whitney Webb. Whitney Webb has done an amazing investigation of everything having to do with Epstein, and that is at Mint Press News, and I've got a link to that in the show notes. Um, it's a it's it's a vast sprawling story, essentially. Now. <clears throat> She's since left Mint Press News. Uh, I over the weekend I listened to just about every interview she's done in the last couple of months and reread her articles and caught on the tail end of one of her pieces that she had uh, officially left Mint Press and is now with the Last American Vagabond. So Last American Vagabond has a YouTube channel and a um, print apparatus print mechanism that uh and you can go and you can find Whitney Webb's amazing work there now um I am psyched that Whitney has uh has a a new gig because when she mentioned this in one of her interviews she said she happened to mention that she did a lot of work at Mint Press News up to six articles a week and holy Christ, y'all, six articles a week. Um, I just, I hope they were paying well, <laughs> paying by the word or something. Uh, that is a lot of writing. If you're not a writer, that is a lot of writing. I'm a writer and I love writing and I do not like writing <clears throat> that much. I mean, six press releases, you know. <laughs> six teeny tiny things, but that's not what Whitney Webb does. When she publishes an article, they are, I had a bunch sitting in front of me, one's 29 pages, one's 39 pages, one's another 29. Here we have a teeny tiny one that comes in at seven pages. She writes a lot. And uh, it, and that's just, uh, yeah, I don't know the circumstances of her leaving to go to another place, but suffice to say, um, that would burn anybody out. Six articles a week. Are you freaking kidding me? But 
the world is better for having her uh, research. What Whitney Webb has done with regard to the Epstein story is she has gone through and connected the history of uh, all these characters, all these people that are now coming into play, Bill Barr among them, uh, with regard to Ghislaine Maxwell. They had already come into play with regard to Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, with the arrest, uh, with the FBI taking Ghislaine into custody, uh, this, is, um, this is another another facet of everything that is um, going on. Okay, so here's what happened. Uh, Maxwell was arrested by the FBI Thursday morning in New Hampshire. A lot of people were like, what the hell is up with New Hampshire? Um, if you want to get lost, if you want to get away and you want to get lost, I would think that New Hampshire is a place to, to go. Uh, I've lived in some places that it's easy to get lost in. And, uh, and I gotta say, New Hampshire might be even better than some of the places I know in, in, in Tennessee and, and, and in Florida. Uh, she was found on a, on a sprawling 156 acre uh, property and a lot of people have been sharing the realtor details of that property. It's kind of interesting and fun. Look for that. Um, the British socialite and Epstein confidant was arrested on charges that she conspired with the financier. That's Jeffrey Epstein. He was a financier in quotation marks. Uh, conspired with him to sexually abuse uh, minors, recruiting girls as young as 14. The indictment uh, specifically, incite, specifically cited the years 1994 to 1997 as those when Ghislaine uh, facilitated and contributed to Jeffrey Epstein's abuse of minor girls by, among other things, helping Epstein to recruit, groom, and ultimately abuse victims known to Maxwell and Epstein to be under the age of 18. So there you go. That's that's the uh, that's the uh, the basics here with the story. Um, but uh, but hell, it goes like so many things. It goes so much deeper than that. This is one of those stories, you know, that part in the movie where uh, in every uh, thriller, there's the investigator who is in their room and they've got the wall covered with red yarn and, and all these pictures and, and, and fairly decent, great graphic design, you know, for, for people who are uh, um, supposedly cops or journalists or whatever. That, that's totally what this is right here. And it's, it's, Rather than a wacky conspiratorial thing, my sense of the reason why this is the case with the Epstein matter is that there are just a lot of people involved. And we're talking about people who, uh, people who are known, people who have history, uh, people connected who are socialites and are rich, and they're connected to other people in ways that are really, really important. And uh Whitney Webb does a really good job of bringing that out in these articles. Now, for myself, I have a little bit of trouble reading an article and 
absorbing a lot of names, if you know what I mean. Like, uh, you know, I'm a faces person. So if I get into an article and there's three and four people that I don't, whose names I don't recognize and you got to go look them up, I start getting lost. So I started sketching out in this uh, Mark Lombardi kind of uh, uh, network diagrams. I started sketching this out and it works in two ways. You know, you, you've got networks of people and then you have a timeline. And so people actually happen on a timeline. Fun fact, literally looked up if I could find a, uh, uh, project management or a timeline maker, like an app that would uh, sort many different timelines over uh, with with a network. And so far, I haven't found anything that would accommodate the amount of data that is just in this story, uh, because there are uh, different timelines and there are different people. Now, let's get down to it. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell is the daughter of uh, the late Robert Maxwell. Robert Maxwell was a member of the parliament uh, in the UK. He died in 1991, having had some sort of something happen to him on his yacht, uh, which happened to be, uh, uh, I believe he named his yacht Ghislaine, um, the Ghislaine, the uh, uh, Ghislaine the yacht. And uh, and it's rumored he's a really powerful guy. He's a, a media mogul, becomes member of parliament. It was rumored that he was working with Israeli military intelligence for a very long time. And he was right before he uh, took off on his yacht, he had stolen a lot of money from some people that had invested in his businesses. And he was he looked like he was um, Lady Ghislaine. Is the, thank you, listener. Lady Ghislaine. Um, so just like in the movies, there were, a, I'm sure he stole money from a lot of different people and a lot of different people, therefore, could have wanted to, uh, you know, get back at him. So maybe that's that's how he died. We don't know. Um, we just know that, hey, that happened. That happened in 1991. So there's one point on your timeline uh, and one person in the network. Now, Robert, Robert Maxwell's daughter, Ghislaine, um, was introduced to Jeffrey Epstein in the 1980s. Um, I'm not sure who brought her to the table and who brought you know, who actually put those, the, those folks together, but she has always uh, conducted herself on behalf of Robert Maxwell and her father and, you know, seeing herself as carrying the torch. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein at the time in the 1980s, he had, he had recently uh procured a job at a t teaching and this was um albert barr's uh, uh work so this is bill barr's dad help him get it helped him get his first job uh but he really wasn't well well on paper he was supposedly you know teaching physics or whatever at this uh 
at the school, this like high school, uh, he was starting to train in what he called shadow finance. And, um, uh, and another word for it, I'll come across it. It's, uh, it's a really funny euphemism for money laundering. Oh, financial bounty hunter. He, he referred to himself as a financial bounty hunter who found hidden assets and claimed that he worked for the CIA in the 1980s, about the time that he hooked up with Galen. Now, I'm sure that you're aware that this story uh, calls into question uh, a lot of American intelligence with regard to this uh, uh network that what Epstein was doing, you know, you, you, you have many facets and you have something that if you look at it from different directions, it's going to appear to be different things to different people. So Jeffrey Epstein was clearly a, 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 a horrible person who was amazingly uh, uh, committed to whatever this addiction was that he had with with, with young women, uh, some of the details of what a typical day looked like for uh, Jeffrey Epstein just doesn't make any sense to me. At a certain point, at a certain point, people get to be a certain age, and you're like, man, you don't really need to 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 to, to squack it that much. I mean, Jesus Christ, what are you doing? Like three times a day with three different young women? I, it, that's too much work. It just seems like a lot of work to me. Um, something was up with that. I mean, he was he was running his his uh, uh, his addiction as if it was a business. Like like he had to get in so many of these women a day to abuse them, uh, young women, uh, children, essentially. And, uh, and, and, and that to me just, just kind of jumps out. Like I know, you know, people have addictions and people are sick in a lot of ways, but, but, uh, but that kind of commitment is, is special. And I think it generally refers to uh, um, something else going on. Now, the other thing that if you look at the story from another angle, uh, you might take into account that what we're seeing is a lot of intelligence involved in it, U.S. intelligence, like the uh, FBI and the CIA kinds of intelligence, not like uh, intelligence quotient. Um, and the story that Whitney Webb tells, which is so important, is she goes back all the way to prohibition to describe how it was that U.S. intelligence got in bed with a bunch of mobsters and a bunch of mobbed up lawmakers to create a mechanism and many mechanisms, as a matter of fact, to, uh, to control people, to blackmail people, you know, control them through blackmail, control them through extortion, uh, and control them through muscle. Now, this was basically a, a, a massive uh, wedding of the mob with lawmakers and with the intelligence community. Now, we talk a lot on the show about how uh, the intelligence community has absolutely gotten out of control in the last however so long. Um, it really, it, it really got cranked up to 11 during the Bush Cheney administration. We had hoped that 
uh, Barack Obama would have put a lid on it. He did not. And so, you know, so we have these agencies and these organizations uh, carrying on with the kinds of powers that, that, that Cheney and George Bush wanted them to have back then. So, so even as empowered as intelligence agencies have been throughout the history of their existence in the United States, it got just, uh, it exploded um, in the early 2000s. Now, in this cast of characters that she describes, you've got, you've got Lou Wasserman, who is uh, who is known mob connection uh, and does the MCA talent agency. This guy Wasserman is very interesting because he brings in the Hollywood aspect to this. So if you wanted to get anywhere in Hollywood, you had to go through Wasserman or you had to make sure that he wasn't uh, um, pissed off at you or whatever. Um, and Lou Osterman also, also happened to be responsible for Ronald Reagan's entire movie and television career and his Screen Actors Guild presidency, which then was launched into his governorship in, in California and later the president of the United States. In, just in Lou Wasserman, L-E-W, Wasserman, like Wasserman Schultz, but I don't think they're related, um, you see how one mobbed up dude was responsible, became responsible for a president of the United States. He groomed him for quite some time and, you know, cultivated it and blah, 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 on and on. He becomes the president of the United States. Another name that that you you meet and you've got to know in this whole network of people is Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn, at the age of 23, was... Uh, Joseph McCartney's right-hand man, uh, something that Whitney touches on that I think is really interesting is that Roy Cohn was connected, uh, uh, all these guys were, were connected to um, different rivalries having to do with the Democratic Party in New York City, um, and Roy Cohn was in competition with Robert Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and they had a bitter rivalry. And there's some indication that Robert Kennedy wanted the job that Roy Cohn got with uh, Joe McCarthy when he was 23 years old. Now, if you think about, just just kind of kind of put yourself in the headspace that we're back in the 50s and we're in the midst of the House Un-American Activities uh, who, uh, Commission Committee, and uh, and it's a red scare, and people in Hollywood especially, but professionals all over the United States were being called in front of this congressional committee to uh, to justify their existence, you know, basically to say, I have never been a communist. Lord knows I would never be on the side of people who wanted to be paid a fair wage, you know, or be taken care of by, you know, the government that is uh, was supposed to do that. Uh, you know, they, and everything just became communism. So if you belong to the wrong kind of union or if you hung out with, uh, you know, uh, anti-war people or this that, and the other that made made you by definition you were made into a communist 
and you were blackballed. Now, the threat of being blackballed was enormous. And so part of this extortion situation had to do with making sure that um, people were uh, appropriately afraid of being called communist and then were uh, uh then you could then you could work them over you know as long as you got people back on their back uh, on their heels and uh, and they're afraid of something that might come out you know this that or the other then you've got them under control likewise and this is one of the things that i find most interesting about Whitney Webb's work is she seems to be describing the conditions for the U.S. intelligence com community to completely control some of the most powerful people in the country. Jeffrey Epstein went after scientists. He went after lawmakers. He went after uh, Hollywood people. You know, his black book is full of some of the biggest names in, uh, in the business pages and in the uh, celebrity pages and on the politics pages uh, of American newspapers. You know, you have Bill Clinton, you had Alan Dershowitz, you had um, Elon Musk, uh, despite his uh, protestations this weekend, Elon Musk was known to have been uh, talking to Jeffrey Epstein. And it ab makes absolute sense because uh, um, that's the kind of person that Jeffrey Epstein tried to um, tried to compromise and compromise is the, is the exact right word there. That was what I was looking for. So all of this, all of this business and this, this sprawled on from prohibition up until Jeffrey Epstein was, was killed, murdered, committed suicide or didn't just disappeared. Whatever it is you believe about that, you know, he's, He's no longer a player in this. Uh, what you have left is the skeleton where uh, the intelligence community, the FBI, the CIA, all of these you know scary spooks are working with mobsters, working with organized crime, uh, specifically in with regard to Epstein, there was a partnership between um, uh, Jewish crime families and Italian crime families uh, in, a, in an operation called the Restaurant Group, I believe. Uh, and a lot of organizations were set up, uh, these foundations, these philanthropies, a lot of philanthropies were set up as means to launder money to go to special operations in big quotation marks that supported the most nefarious black operations that the military or the intelligence community wanted to embark on. And the ultimate expression of this is the Iran Contra affair. And the, all these guys wrapped up in a, in Iran Contra. As a matter of fact, the, uh, this, uh, uh, human trafficking, this, uh, a prostitution ring was involved in Iran Contra and became one of the uh, channels through which one of the conduits through which money was uh, 
pushed around. So we're going to leave that there. We're going to come back after we talk to Kardec uh, and pull out some more pieces because I want you, I want to tie this in with Bounty Gate. And uh, there's a, a surprising connection here. But the top line, the, the, the thing that I think is just most important for folks to understand is that uh, it's out in the wide open at this point. We've got mobsters, mobbed up lawmakers, and the intelligence community uh, working together as a kind of shadow government. I mean, because like all intents and purposes, when you have all of those elements together doing what it doing it whatever it is that they do, then they're what kind of justice and what kind of of legal framework even matters, you know? And as you can see, we can't even bring uh, Jeffrey Epstein into any kind of um, uh, justice, you know? He, he was suicided or killed himself or was killed or whatever it was. Uh, instead of having a day in court when his victims could, um, could find justice. Now, I can't wait to see what happens with Ghislaine Maxwell, given all of this that happened. Uh, to be sure, the, what she's been charged with is like a slap on the wrist. So she was charged with... Uh, incidents that only happened between a, a, a few years in the 90s, 1993 to 1997, and there's a real tight box drawn around it. That's got to mean that the evidence that they have to bring to bear on her is with regard to a certain uh, victim, um, probably Maria Farmer, uh, who's also done some interviews with uh, with Whitney Webb. You can find those on YouTube. Just uh, search uh, Maria Farmer and uh, Whitney Webb. And one count of perjury. You know, so there's so there's just it looks to me like they charged her with the least amount of stuff that they could possibly charge her with, and uh, and just went in and picked her up. You know, I don't know what that means. We will hopefully find out a little bit more as we go along. Um, but stay tuned. We're going to go into part two of this after we talk to Cardit Krishnayer on uh, COVID and professional sports. Hey, Kardec, are you there? I am. How are you? I am well. I'm swell. I'm so well, I'm swell. How about you? Uh, yeah, I would be swell if we uh, 
if we were turning this thing around uh, on COVID. But uh, unfortunately, you know, in the state of Florida, things have gotten progressively worse. And I mean, I I I, I thought three weeks ago we had hit a uh, hit some sort of all time high and and, and and zero hour, and it's just uh, those those seem like uh, heady days by comparison to today. Unfortunately. Well, let's get right into it then. Um, you have a, an article up at the Florida Squeeze, and I've got a link to that in the show notes, uh, about uh, professional sports returning in Florida at the time of COVID, that it can't be, it really couldn't be worse, the worst case scenario. So we also saw this week a huge spike where we've been having, just since the state of Florida, more and more days of 10,000 new infected cases. So kind of pull this together for us. What are we looking at? Yeah, so um, obviously I was on the show two weeks ago talking about COVID and and the spike and the record numbers in Florida. And I was on the show four weeks ago saying we were about to hit record numbers, which we did that week. So we've essentially had four successive weeks of new record highs in terms of new cases in the state. Now, the huge difference between – Four weeks ago, I, I, my first uh, real um, loud alarm, I mean, I was tweeting things the first week of June, but my first angry article about the way COVID was being handled by elected officials in the state was dated June 7th, which is exactly four weeks ago today. And at that point, I was concerned because the positive percentage rate per test had crossed 5%, and that is the dangerous level. Right? Um, that's what all the scientists tell us. That's what the WHO tells us, 5%. Now, we were at 5% then. The critics who have had, um, and I, I've actually written an article before the squeeze if you're interested in checking it out, to, with all the, uh, all the lame excuses that the COVID deniers or the anti-vaxxers or whoever they are throwing this stuff out there, uh, MAGA people, you know, Trump, Trump backers, whoever they are. I, it's all those things, right? Um, all, the, all, the, all the lame excuses they come up with for four months, all the things they have said about coronavirus, which are wrong, all the pushback that they've said. So at that point, on June 7th and June 8th, when I was concerned that we had crossed 5% in this state and the number had gone in your county of Orange County, which is the county I think we're primarily going to be talking about tonight, or, or the region of the state we're primarily going to be talking about, had gone from 1.4% positive tests on June 1st, positive percentage of tests, to, to about 6% on June 7th, um, the pushback was, well, we're, we're just doing more tests. And I conceded, yes, um, when we were at our record numbers, our previous record numbers in early April, getting about 1,400 cases a day in the state, we were doing fewer tests than we were doing on uh, the first week of June when we were getting 12, 1,300 new cases a, a day. Um, however, we just about a 2% positive rate in the state the last week in May, to 5%. So that meant while we, we, had, we were testing more than in April, but not more than in late May. And, and this is really important because the president keeps, um, keeps being dishonest, for lack of, for lack of a, a more harsh term, uh, in his tweet and in his public statement saying, well, the reason we have the most, we have all these cases because we're testing more. Well, actually, I, I don't know about nationally, okay? I'm not following all 50 states. I'll admit that. In Florida, we are not testing any more now than we tested in late May. We're testing at the same rate. Now, there's some days where we, days where we test more, like um, 
uh, one of the dates the previous week and when we got that data back yesterday. Um, and there were other dates where we tested a lot less. There were two dates last week where we tested less than any day since, like, June 10th. Okay? So, um, anyway, long story short, the pushback at that time was, oh, we're doing more tests. Well, now that we're doing more, more tests doesn't apply. And our positive rate in the state in this morning's report was 15%. I, 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 can't, I can't even explain how horrible that, a number that is. So now the anti-vaxxer, MAGA, whatever crowd they are, come back and say, well, maybe it's uh, asymptomatic people. Maybe it's because uh, uh, they're double testing. Maybe it's because um, people are taking two or three tests. It's incredible. But the the point remains, and and I'll I'll give you the county data from today. Uh, For Orange County, um, we had... Um, oh, actually, this may not be today. Well, this is, yeah. So for, for, for Morris County, we had a positive percentage. No, sorry, this is not today because this Osceola was 14.2. See, the, day, so, the numbers are so high every day, honestly, that um, it's difficult to uh, keep them straight. Okay, Orange County today, we had 760 new cases, 14.2% of the test administered were positive. Osceola County, we had 188 new cases, 16.4% of those were positive. That is pretty consistent with what we you know, I will I will Orange County's positive percentage has come down a little bit. It was about seventeen and a half a week ago. Um, but it's still in a far uh, unacceptable uh, place. So in the midst of all this, Brooke, as we've uh, as I talk about in the article, Major League Soccer and the National Basketball Association are not only restarting play for the teams in Florida, they're moving their entire leagues to Florida. And we've had um, a serious uh, problem with Major League Soccer. Their competition is supposed to start Wednesday at Disney, um, where there have been a remarkable number of positive tests. There are teams that, because of the situation in Florida, have decided to fly at the last minute. Which means the idea of them being in the bubble at Disney was that they would all be sequestered for two weeks before the competition, right? That's part of the idea of a bubble. You now have the, the team from Nashville. You have the team from Toronto. The Canadian teams in particular are concerned. They've had a very different attitude about this virus in Canada uh, than in the United States. There's been a different attitude about this virus in all major industrialized nations when compared to the United States. So um, there are a number of teams who are just getting to Orlando now or are only going to come tomorrow. Some of the teams that came already had new positive tests, and they developed the positive. They had players who tested negative, got on the plane in, in, in Washington or Seattle or wherever. Uh, oh, yeah, Dallas is a great example. And then get to Orlando, and then they test positive. Um, and Houston also. Dallas and Houston had this situation. So, um, so we're having these sporting competitions relocate their entire league to Disney, to Central Florida, we had a coronavirus uh, crisis in this state. Right now, we're, we're registering more new cases on a daily basis, on average, over the last three weeks than Russia, than India, than Pakistan, all these places that, we're, that are talked about as coronavirus hotspots around the world. The only place that's doing worse than us is Brazil. Um, we're lobbying off resources because part of the idea of these sports leagues being here is that um, players will get tested every day. Uh, staff will get tested every day. They're in a bubble. There are all these resources lobbed off. We're lobbing off resources in this state 
for these professional athletes and for the staff um, who are staying at the, the Dolphin and Swan Hotels on the Disney property at a time when the line for people to get tested for COVID in this state are three and a half or four hours long in many places. And in some places, they ran out of tests a few days ago and told people, you know what, come back Sunday or Monday. So that, that, that's where we're at in Florida. And I'm sorry if my tone seems very belligerent, but I'm, I'm just past the point of, of, uh, of uh, accepting that there are different points of view on this. I, I just, I, it blows my mind the way we've handled it in this case. I, I am totally with you on that. I, I, the, uh, there, there is a, uh, what is it, you know, like a truther kind of vibe that's happening with people thinking that it's a, uh, obviously there's the Trump people who think that uh, wearing a mask is some sort of, you know, personal affront to them, you know, like God forbid they actually, you know, live in a, ecosystem that where people actually interact but there's also this kind of uh, trutherism with regards to whether or not the uh, the disease exists or the disease affects people right that, that, that's the most mind-boggling thing so now what's happened like I said I, I, I catalog the four months of excuses from conservatives and from MAGA people and, and anti-vaxxers and these things. Um, and now that everything I've said and all the people who were pushing back on me four weeks ago now have been disarmed by what has happened. And everything that uh, I said was happening in the state has happened. So now the excuse, Brooke, is, well, you know, it's really not that serious. It's like the common cold. or um, And then they get obsessed about death rates. You know, heaven forbid uh, someone... Uh, uh, if someone someone is sick for six weeks but they live, then that that's fine. There's no problem with that, right? And they have permanent respiratory damage. But there are all these now excuses claiming that it's not really um, it, you don't really get ill, and the people who've gotten ill who've been positive, well, they actually had the flu, and on and on and on. It, it is unbelievable. And this is this is I, I don't want to get too partisan with this, but this is the world that has been created by this president. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't realize the danger. I, I mean, and I have to admit, as, as someone on the left um, who, who is not always in love with my party and who's not, you know, doesn't like the neoliberal uh, point of view, I had some sympathy for the people on the right who said, well, the media deletes and all this stuff. But now I'm seeing that the, in this coronavirus, the four months of coronavirus, how much fake news uh, generated on the right. And how much um, outright lie then become, become an alternate reality for, for the MAGA people? So, you know, unfortunately, I mean, without uh, Joe Biden uh, lifting a finger with him bunkered in Wilmington or in Philadelphia, wherever he was in Wilmington, you know, I've gone from being like, eh, you know, I don't really care for Biden as a nominee to being a gung-ho Biden supporter because I'm just seeing the cognitive dissonance of these people. I mean, it is and, – and, but – you know, beyond the whole political thing, now we've got lives in this state. We've got people's health. We have people's um, entire kind of um, personal um, good, you know, the, the, the greater good and the good of the community being sacrificed in, in Florida, and it just stinks. It, I saw some just bizarre uh, 
stuff going around on social media this week. And one was uh, that COVID might have been here since 2013, um, that, that, uh, that masks can, can hurt, your, hurt your respiratory system. Uh, that, uh, that, uh, oh, oh, that, that Bill Gates is working on a vaccine that is going to inject, uh, nano tracking into people. And it's the, you know, the explosion of the, the, the grand takeover, the seventh seal will, you know, happen. All of the, it's just nuts. And I, I, I feel like, you know, we talk a lot about the, uh, a crisis of um, a crisis of reason, and this is one of the cases where where we're seeing it in full bloom, because you know we've had our media for a few years now, specifically, has had a real hard time uh, not being partisan and. And we went into this making this partisan so that, you know, one side, so, so that the science actually uh, has been chopped up and, and dispersed. So the Democrat side of the partisan divide can have this science, and they're going to claim, you know, the science over here, X, Y, and Z, and the Republicans are going to, and the Trumpers are going to, uh, claim the arguments uh, one, two, and three over on the other side, and never the twain shall meet. You know, it's it, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, there's no intersection, and, and, and this is this is an interesting uh, general thought process also about kind of the never Trump Republicans who we've talked about before on our show, Brooke, and and the Republicans who have stuck with Trump. Because the never Trump Republicans are largely people connected with the, with, with George and uh, George and Jeb Bush, uh, who have worked in those administrations, either here in Florida or um, at the national level, and they were in the same Fox News, uh, Townhall.com, Newsmax uh, uh, camp as um, those people during the Bush years. Now, ten years later, as we're in, in the middle of this virus, they are in this very, um, very, in this mode of where they are being reasonable, they are using critical thinking skills, maybe in a way they didn't uh, during the Bush years, and they have completely separated themselves from, from those who decided to stick with Trump and have gone down the rabbit hole even further of this stuff, which includes the major media outlets, Fox, Newsmax Magazine, and, and Television Channel, uh, One American News, which now Trump has been... Uh, promoting um, uh, very actively on his Twitter. One American News uh, peddles conspiracy theories all the time and is one of the, and is one of the uh, sources of a lot of this uh, denial of, uh, 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 of coronavirus, the, the COVID denial uh, camp, which, which does trace itself back to the anti-vaxxers who, who have been active now for, for some years, uh, in, in, particularly here in Florida. But um, there is a crisis of reason. And so now what we're finding is any effort to have a conversation with those on the other side who, 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 who have a different point of view, the MAGA people, um, is in vain. They have no ability at this point to comprehend 
process information about science, about diseases, about viruses, and maybe change their point of view or maybe meet, meet us halfway. They are just absolutely unwilling to do it. So this now explains why, and this is an important point, why if you look at every other major industrialized nation in this world, South Korea, Japan, um, the, the, the nations of Western Europe, France, Germany, Spain, Italy. Spain and Italy which were the coronavirus epicenters, by the way, at one point. Portugal, Belgium, who had a real problem with the coronavirus. And, and maybe, to a lesser extent, the United Kingdom. They're, a little, they're, they're, they're kind of halfway between the U.S. and, and, and the rest of uh, the major industrialized nations. Oh, and Canada, of course. Um, there has been one kind of philosophy in how to defeat this virus. There have been different different formulas in each country, but a, a kind of a common purpose. Those societies have come together. People on the left, people on the right, people in the middle have come together with a common purpose. Let's beat this thing. Let's lock down. Let's, uh, let's listen to our doctors. Let's listen to our scientists. Uh, and then we can reopen safely, and then we can resume all our political arguments and all our, all our uh, other ideological debates. Uh, to a lesser extent, this happened in the U.K., although it was more politicized there. Uh, Boris Johnson, as we know, is a Trump-like character. Um, now, contrast that with what's happened in the United States, where instead, um, while there may have been a consensus for a week or two in March that we should, we should close down, we should lock down, we should begin uh, uh, taking things seriously, by the time Easter rolls around, you had large elements of, of, of uh, conservative opinion leaders and these conservative uh, media outlets, as well as uh, people uh, in and around Trump, and maybe Trump himself, agitating to reopen the country. You know, after about uh, uh, two weeks of a full kind of lockdown in the country. Um, in this state, you had a governor in, in uh, Ron DeSantis who is all over the place, right? You know, one day he, he's, uh, he's looking at data, um, he's saying, yeah, we have a real problem. I like the fact that Miami-Dade County and Broward County, they're wearing masks. I don't like the fact Palm Beach isn't wearing masks. And he's saying, you know, logical stuff. Then the next day, he's behaving like he's Trump Jr., you know, taunting the media, saying things about how, oh, you know, it's asymptomatic people, young people really don't get sick, all, all of this stuff which has been debunked. So um, even when there are conservatives and people who are Republican elected officials who may uh, – have instinctively wanted to do the right thing, uh, which I, I believe is the case with DeSantis, they end up, they're, in, they're too deep in MAGA world. They're too scared of having a primary challenge. They're too scared of what Trump might say about them on Twitter that they back off. So here's where we are, Brooke, right now. You've got uh, the European Union in a, in a phase reopening. You have businesses starting to reopen, people starting to travel again. You have uh, safety protocols in place that everybody in the society is observing. So um, their reopenings have, have seen, as they reopen, the number of coronavirus case, new coronavirus cases continue to go down in those places. Um, same thing in Canada. Same thing in Japan and South Korea. South Korea, we know, has done a very good job from the beginning. Here in the United States, we are at this point and this may, this may blow the mind of people listening, although I think they probably know because they're, they're, not, they're not Fox News watchers or, or what have you. This week, we recorded new, more new coronavirus cases in this, state, in, in this country, and, in, and for sure in this state. This state, we, we're recording five times as many cases as we did at our previous height. Um, we recorded more new coronavirus cases than 
any time during this crisis. We are right now at the peak, and yet there are people walking, you know, running around, letting off fireworks, uh, not putting their masks on, going into grocery stores, having uh, outdoor gatherings, having uh, parties, wanting to go into bars and pubs. Um, the cognitive dissonance in this country is pretty incredible, and unfortunately, I, I know a lot of us on the left have had some skepticism about um, this country for a long time and justified skepticism about American capitalism and, and, uh, and, and kind of the value system associated with that. But I think uh, without question, uh, thanks to Donald Trump and thanks to uh, the people around him and thanks to the cognitive dissonance that's grown, the United States is no longer uh, viewed in any sort of, uh, um, as any sort of great nation by many around the world. It is no longer the end of the world. It is no longer um, this country that's a shining city on the hill to describe what Ronald Reagan would say. We are, in fact, now exactly viewed by people in Western Europe exactly how those of us on the left have described the United States for many years. They see this country as, uh, this country is quite frankly in, in one of its most embarrassing moments in terms of public perception abroad. And um, the only way to change that is to get rid of Donald Trump. But the problem is, I th- uh, my fear is for even if Joe Biden is elected and he becomes president, this, this MAGA cult, this kind of, um, this crisis of reason on the right will not go away. I, I do not think it is, uh, it is uh, at all pra- uh, pra- a practical reality to believe when Trump, le- or when Trump leads the scene that the Republican Party returns to where it was. uh, under the Bush family. I I just don't think that that's possible at this point. Um, I think there will continue to be uh, this problem for the United States, and what that means is is ultimately decline of this nation. That's where we're headed. Yeah, I think that... uh, I think that you're right. On all of those counts, it's obvious that the rest of the world is looking at us as uh, a laughing stock. Um, And I think that that's where... Uh, uh, these uh, never Trump uh, organizations are really finding their power. Like the Lincoln Project pretty much uh, developed, not developed, but appeared overnight, it seems, with uh, all kinds of messaging and, and little ads and social media stuff in support of Joe Biden. And the uh, Lincoln Project is, of course, uh, lots of old Bush administration people. And uh, it seems to me that you're right. We're not going to get rid of the irrationality on, on, on the right, the inherent irrationality. Uh, but, uh, and there's plenty of irrationality on the left for sure. But it looks yeah. like what we're getting ready to do is, um, replace Trump with uh, a coalition of uh, the worst part, (laughs) the worst part of the Democratic Party from the last decade and some of the Bush administration. Like if the Lincoln Project is really the uh, uh, power building, uh, cabinet making, king makers in the background that I think they are, that, that most people think they are, then uh, then it looks like a Biden administration, and he's long said he would put Republicans on his cabinet. It looks like the Biden administration might be 
uh, a hybrid of uh, of Bush years and Obama years. What do you? That's a little off topic, but do you have like a, a sense of that? Yeah, I think it'll probably be more Obama years than Bush years, but I certainly think Bush and I should also mention the Lincoln Project has a lot of McCain people involved with uh, with them, That's like right. Weaver and uh, Mike Murphy. Although Mike Murphy was a Jeff Bush person before he was a McCain person, so yeah. It, but it's you know Tim Miller, guys like that are Jeff Bush people. Um, in fact, they're leading uh, they're leading operative whose name is escaping me. Uh, not Rick Wilson, he's involved obviously, but their leading actual operative is, is a is a uh, kind of a, a mid-level Republican consultant from the state who is associated with the Bushes, who's now swinging left. Well, I, I, actually, they may not be swinging left. They're just all anti-Trump for, for good reason. Um, yeah, I think it'll probably be – I don't know what he's going to do in terms of placating the left. I think he's more interested in placating the Sanders, uh, Sanders supporters than Obama or, or Hillary Clinton were, which means he might give – us on the left, a cabinet position or two, looks like that might be Elizabeth Warren as attorney general. That, that, that's a possibility. And, and the hope is uh, among people who advocate that, that Warren, because she's uh, the feisty character she is, will start prosecuting Trump, uh, tr- Trump, Trump people. But again, there is a danger with this because I think, one, um, the Lincoln Project people in particular, as well as some people in the Democratic Party, they're, they're the Susan Rice's of the world, those sorts of people, um, want very badly for, the, for Biden, if and when he gets into office, to reposition the U.S. and basically go to our allies and say, look, you know, uh, we've, been, we've, been on, uh, we've been heroin addicts for the last four years or something like that. Please forgive us. We're off the juice now. Um, I don't know if it's going to be that simple because, again, Biden and his and, and you know the neoliberals, neoconservative people who who he's, who, who, who he's now surrounding himself with, um, are um, are very concerned about the reputation of the United States abroad, and, and for good reason. And I, and I agree with them on that. But I think they are naive in thinking that they are going to be able to undo the damage of Trump by electing Biden and then going to Angela Merkel and going to Macron and going to Theresa or to, well, Boris Johnson is the Trump ally, but when it was Theresa May, obviously there was a chilly relationship between May and Trump going to um, the Western allies and saying, look, you know, we've been, we've been high on cocaine for four years. We're back now and, and we're ready to re- resume our, our role as, as leaders. I, I think the Western leaders are going to say, well, no, but you guys elected Trump. You guys have, a large element of your country who is uh, still with Trump uh, or with Trumpism, you guys abandoned us. This is going to be critical now. I think coronavirus has made things a lot worse for repairing the uh, American relationships with our allies and American United States reputation abroad. You abandoned us when we needed your global leadership the most. While the WHO was doing what they were doing, we were looking for a coordinated response globally the uh, your president uh, and yes, Joe Biden. It's not you, obviously. You thank you, thank you for beating this guy. But um, your president was, uh, was was making coronavirus into either a hoax or some sort of uh, cause to to, uh, to 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 make race to pop off and say racist things and to uh, and, and to blame immigrants and that sort of stuff. So no, we don't really trust the United States anymore. So what's going to happen at that point is going to be very interesting. Do the Lincoln Project, neoconservative types, do they abandon Biden if they don't get what they want out of it? Do they push harder? Um, 
or, you know, maybe everything's fine for, for us politically, domestically, but the U.S. just never recovers its standing in the world. And I think that's a very, that's a, that is a possible scenario. I don't want to say it's a likely scenario, but I think the, the ability of our allies to forgive the United States for these last four years, there might have been the tolerance to do that. And I think that was you know, a lot of the Republicans who never comforts who were going to back whoever it was, Biden, Buttigieg. I mean, even some of, some of them even said, they, like, Joe Walsh said he was back Bernie, which surprised me. Uh, most of them I don't think were in that camp. But, um, you know, I think that they, they, they were envisioning an ability to repair the reputation of the United States and resume global leadership from the United States, because we know they, they love um, the thing that separates, I think, the neoconservatives from the actual conservative people back in Trump. The neoconservatives love multilateral lateral institutions. They love the United Nations. They love, you know, all of these things. So that, that is something that I think they thought that if Biden or whoever, Buttigieg, whoever it is, whatever Democrat, even Sanders or Warren gets in, the U.S. resumes its role, just resumes where we were when Obama left office as the global leader in all these institutions. And um, I don't think it's that simple after coronavirus. I think what COVID exposed uh, was, yeah, Trump abandoned uh, a global response. Trump made an absolute buffoon of himself, you know, useful buffoonery and, and, and racism and all that. But that there was a large element of American society, very vocally, the people we've been talking about uh, for the last half hour of group, who are um, behind Trump. And that means the Western allies will never tr- trust the United States again because they know that that is, is not – 5% of the population, like it is the far right in most of these Western European countries, represents uh, 5 to 10% of the population, the people who back Le Pen, the people who back, back Nigel Farage, uh, maybe a little more, 10 to 15%. In the United States now, they clearly see after COVID that the 46% Trump got of the popular vote in 2016 was not an accident. There is like 40% of the population, at least, that, is, uh, that it has this anti-intellectual cognitive dissonance. And as long as that element is there, that anti-intellectualism is that apparent in the United States, and it's pronounced, it is, uh, it is magnified by social media and Fox News and Newsmax and OAN and, and townhall.com and all of the, and the Federalists. Let's not forget the Federalists. That's probably the worst of you now, uh, even worse than the other people I've named, uh, other entities I've named. Uh, I don't think the Western allies are going to trust the U.S. again. I don't think um, the neoconservatives and neoliberals who are, who are thinking that once Biden gets in, uh, things are back to normal and we just resume the, the happy days of the Bush and uh, they're not happy days for me, but for them, the happy days of the Bush and Obama year. I, I just don't think that the Trump damage is going to be undone very easily. And coronavirus um, has probably removed the United States from the, uh, from the list of elite global superpowers. I, I'm being perfectly honest with you. I, I, I don't think that, that you recover from uh, th- this being this badly bungled. The, the, the response in, in the United States has been no different than, most of the, than it has been in most of the developing world. In fact, it's probably been worse than in most places. So the United mm-hmm. States looks like a third world country when it comes to the biggest issue of the last 10 or 15 years. Well, and we don't have a healthcare system that uh, on the back end of this, we don't have a healthcare system that can support any kind of health crisis. So this being like a pandemic and you know a health crisis by nature, uh, you know, we uh, obviously we can't get people tested. You know, so there's that. But once they're tested and they're positive, I mean, 
uh, it's only a percentage of people who can afford to get treatment after that. So we've got a, a, a real contradiction in the just at the very base of uh, you know, our, our response to this, because we don't, you know, without any kind of public health care there, how can you even have public health? Yeah. So this is since uh, English soccer resumed a few weeks ago, um, besides wearing a black lives matter patch, which uh, by the way, black lives matter has become huge in Europe. And, and part of the reason I think it's so big in Europe is that there's a, a, rec- a, a remarkable amount of, and a record amount of anti-Americanism on the, uh, in Western Europe because of Donald Trump. So Black Lives Matter may say Black Lives Matter, but I think for a lot of these people in Europe, it's about, uh, you know, FU to the United States and to Donald Trump. But um, in English soccer, in addition to the Black Lives Matter kit, uh, patch that they're wearing uh, in, these, in these matches that have restarted and uh, in front of empty stadiums, they are wearing a heart with NHS inside it on the front of each of their jerseys. And in the stands, because there are no crowds, there are huge banners thanking the NHS. So this is the view of public health, even in a country like the United Kingdom, which has been infected a little bit by Trumpism via Boris Johnson. There is still an overriding view that public health system and public health that, it, it, that represents the greater good um, is to be thanked. And, and people on left and right, and that includes the Boris Johnson people, come together to applaud the National Health Service. They come together to, uh, to thank the National Health Service and to defeat coronavirus via, via the National Health Service. Here in this country, if you start talking about public health, you have, again, this 40% that are anti-vaxxers who are, well, 40% of the population is an anti-vaxxer. So, you know, the 40% of the MAGA, you know, right away, it's part of some socialist plot. Uh, to subvert America. Then you have the neoliberals who um, have, uh, ha- have uh, obviously made a, a deal with the insurance companies. And in addition to that, you have the networks that are associated with, uh, with, with, with the Democratic Party in this country, uh, MSNBC and CNN, the television channels, who uh, take remarkable amounts of money from pharma. And their public affairs programs are all uh, sponsored by pharma. The same way that public affairs programs in the 80s and 90s on NBC, CBS, and ABC were sponsored by Archer Daniels Midland. If you remember when they were, uh, mm. they wanted to make sure they kept their farm subsidies, and they were price fixing at the time, as uh, Kurt Eichenwald let the world know a couple of years later uh, with his book, uh, which was made into a movie with Matt Damon, and I can't remember the name, uh, The Informant. Uh, but mm-hmm. ADM sponsored all the public affairs shows in the 1990s, and now um, you've got pharma sponsoring those same shows, at least the ones that are on kind of uh, Democratic-aligned networks. The ones that are on Fox and, uh, and, and the Republican networks, are all, they all have shady, um, shady backing. And, and I, I should mention, uh, in closing on this, this particular subject, Brooke, The Federalist, which, which I mentioned earlier, is a very, very bad uh, publication, a publication that uh, uh, is... Uh, I think out there just to do hit jobs on on, on the left and, and to promote uh, nagaism or whatever you want to call this new alt right conservatism. I guess is what they call it. Um, we still don't know. We we know there's some hedge funds involved with the Federalists. We don't actually know who funds the Federalists. And the Federalists, who is run by Ben Dominic, who is the wife of Meghan McCain. So this is where I think, or the husband of Meghan McCain, which is why Meghan McCain is not on the same page as her mother is, and as all these former McCain advisors who are backing Biden are. 
um, Megan McCain is, I think, very much with Trump um, because of who her husband is. This publication um, essentially tests markets, I would say, all the conspiracy theories and all the slanderous attacks on people uh, who are uh, uh, on the left. They are the people who also went after the likes of uh, Christine Blasey Ford. They're the ones who have uh, essentially taken the, the more, more recent shots at Joe Biden that have come from, from them, although I think a lot of those shots aren't landing right now. But they'll just keep shooting. Um, we have no idea who funds these, these people. At least I complain about neoliberals. I complain about the uh, – uh, you, you and I both complain about all of these neoliberal entities. But at least we can, there is some transparency in that we know who funds them. Now, raising – the red flag and making people aware of who funds them and the conflict of interest is more difficult, right? We've had such a hard time with that. But there are these entities on the right now, and I would also include Sunshine State News in this state, which is operates very much like federal stuff. Um, we don't know who funds them. And That's right. It, it, you could, yeah, you could, you could assume in the past maybe it's Coke Industries or somebody, but I don't even think the Coke brothers are involved, want to be that involved with this Trump stuff now. So um, there's some really shady stuff happening on the right, and I think the American response to coronavirus, which is uh, which has dethroned this nation from the leading nations in the world, it, it will be historians will look back 100 years from now and will see this as a pivotal event in the decline of the United States. Um, has been essentially offered by a, 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 an absolute clown and Donald Trump, and then a bunch of shady interests that we cannot put our fingers on because we don't know who funds them, uh, uh, pushing fake news and fake narratives on the right. It's easy for Democrats to claim, oh, it must be the Russians. Well, okay, maybe some of it's the Russians, but I don't buy most of that. I think most of it is some deep-seated uh, right-wing interests in this country, maybe hedge funds and the like, that are, uh, that are uh, fanning the flames of this thing. I think a lot of it is, quote, domestic terrorism. Wow. Well, uh, I mean, Let's, let's leave the listeners with one thing. Give me your uh, uh, definition of neoconservative. Yeah, so I think the neoconservatives were always former, were largely former Democrats, uh, people like Bill Kristol. Bill Kristol now uh, brags about the fact that he walked precincts at 14 for Hubert Humphrey, and, and, uh, you know, and, and we know Charles Crothammer and worked for Walter Mondale. Um, they were largely a group of former Democrats, many of them Jewish, uh, which I think is significant because, and we'll talk about why it's significant in a minute, uh, who, were, um, who, who were foreign policy hawks, who were, uh, be, because a lot of them were Jewish, they felt like um, the United States could be a force for good in the world and that the United States could, be, could spread liberal democracy to prevent um, things like Nazi Germany from happening again. So they advocated all these wars, got us into all these wars. I mean, during the Clinton years, the neoconservatives were coalescing. They were uh, on the right, but they were pushing Clinton to intervene in in Bosnia and Kosovo uh, because the Muslims in Bosnia and Kosovo were being thrown in concentration camps by the Serbs. Um, The Serbs being, of course, a close ally of Russia. Keep that in mind, because I think this this Russophobia, a lot of it does come from the neoconservatives. Um, so that, they pushed that. They got Clinton to intervene, albeit half-heartedly in late. Um, and uh, Bosnia became independent. Kosovo has autonomous status. Um, and then 
they had us intervene, obviously, in the Middle East in the, in the 2000s. Now, during this period, the neoconservatives played conservative on social and economic issues and pretended to be good conservative Republicans. But there was always a suspicion among Republicans that these, pe- these people were actually Democrats when it came to domestic policy. They were just in a power, you know, they were just in an arrangement where they had sacrificed their uh, domestic ideology uh, in order to get the foreign policy, the aggressive uh, foreign policy, which uh, had the U.S. intervening and, and starting wars and all this stuff, um, that, they, that, that was the core of their ideology. We saw then under Obama the neoconservatives begin to shift. You know, they were still Republicans, but there was uh, a lot of editorials written by neoconservative thinkers praising Obama's uh, um, foreign policy. There were other times they tried to push him a little harder. There was disappointment um, when, he, uh, when he didn't go into Syria. Then Donald Trump gets elected. And I think this is pivotal again, because like I said, mo- many of them, the leaders of the movement, the, the, the um, Bill Crystal, the Carl Palmer, who's passed away, uh, David Frum, they're Jewish. And um, quite frankly, you know, they see, they see Trump as anti-Semitic. I mean, I have no, there's no other way I can... I can't, mm-hmm. I can't put it in a more gentle way. Um, they see Trump as anti-Semitic. They see parallels between Trump and um, the rise of fascism and Nazism in Germany. That was ostensibly why they wanted to fight some of these wars abroad. And they have uh, um, shifted into, a, uh, into an alliance now with the Democratic Party. What is also very obvious about the neoconservatives is that the conservative critique, the mainstream conservative critique of theirs, that they were not really social and economic conservatives, but were just in that mode because they were in alliance with uh, the Republicans, is now proving to be true. Because I see um, a lot of the neoconservatives are great champions of the Black Lives Matters movement now. Um, now, again, I, I, would, I would say about... Uh, Neoconservative and both Republicans in particular, they're pretty race neutral. Um, the the, the a, a key distinct, distinguishing factor between Bush Republicans and, and Donald Trump Republicans is their views of race. And I will concede that as much as I dislike the, the Bush family for their ideology, they have always been um, very far to the left in terms of in terms of where the Republican Party is on race, um, particularly George W. Bush himself. Um, so I, that's how I would describe a neoconservative. They, they are interve- they are invo- interventionists in foreign policy, but they're guided by this view of liberal democracy being a bulwark against um, against uh, authoritarianism. And so this is now the, the the thing for them is that Trump is aligned with Putin and Erdogan, and you know the neoconservatives keep insisting Trump is aligned with Xi and China, which I agree with. I think that's true. However, Trump is trying to make the case that, um, the, that the Chinese are actually aligned with the Democrats. But that's how I would describe the neoconservatives. So I'm not even sure that the, 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 the label conservative even applies to them anymore, but they were called neoconservatives because they traditionally had been liberals who became conservatives because of foreign policy. So they were hence new conservatives, neoconservatives. Now they've shifted back to uh, the Democratic Party. So I don't know what we call them. I mean, I guess we call them I, I don't know what we call them. We call them Bush Democrats, probably. Well, um, it, the way that I kind of came into you know, using the term neoconservative is, is different than the way I 
came to using the term neoliberal. So it came to use the term neoconservative with regard to foreign policy, specifically the Bush doctrine and uh, preventative, what was it, a um, preventative war uh, strategy. Yeah, preemptive, that's it. And I'm wondering if the neoconservatives aren't shifting some of their uh, uh, you know, where they were interested in Iran and the middle or Iraq and Iran and the Middle East. I wonder if folks like, you know, the, the, the Lincoln project, if they're not like waiting in the wings and looking to uh, do something vis-a-vis Russia, you know, considering yeah. that this has all been, you know, kind of set up in the years since uh, Trump was elected. Yeah, I, I think Russia may be the focal point of all their thinking. Because again, I go back to the 1990. 19, okay, so they originally shifted to the to the to the to the Republican Party in the 1980s because of the Cold War, and their great hero was uh, a senator, a Democratic senator from uh, from Washington named Scoop Jackson. Uh, those of you, some of you listening, may know who Scoop Jackson is. He was a very, if you want to know about J- Scoop Jackson, he was very liberal on economic issues. In fact, he was probably the greatest champion of labor in the U.S. Senate at the time. Uh, the AFL-CIO loved him. Um, yet, but he was also this hawk when it came to the Soviet Union and the Cold War and, and Jackson Danik and all these uh, uh, Cold War era kind of uh, sanctions and arming all of the, uh, the insurgent groups around the world. Um, so they were all scoop Jackson Democrats that then became Republicans. In the 1990s, as I mentioned, when Bill Clinton was the president, their great cause was, other than taking out Saddam Hussein, their great cause was championing the Muslims in Kosovo and Bosnia, and they were making the parallel that uh, the Serbs under Milosevic were putting the Muslims in a uh, in concentration camps, which reminded them that many of them were dead or Jews, uh, of what happened with Hitler. That is correct. Um, however, the um, to me at the time, uh, or not at the time, but now looking back in hindsight. Much of their championing of, uh, of, of these Kosovan and, and uh, Bosnian Muslims may have had to do with the fact that they were uh, being oppressed by a government sponsored by Russia. Uh, the Serbs, I mean, the, you, you don't have to look any further than World War I to know the, the relationship, the historic relationship between Serbia and, and Russia. Um, they're the same people, right, essentially. So um, the, I think Russia has been at the center of their thinking. They got diverted on Iraq and Iran and uh, Syria and all these things in the, in, in, in the 2000s and the Bush and Obama years. But Russia was where they were with what they were focused on uh, under Reagan, under Clinton. It's what they're focused on under Trump. And I think that they are, uh, they, they, they are probably going back there. Uh, there is obviously some sort of relationship between the Democratic Party and Ukraine. Uh, and the Biden thing just kind of exposes that publicly. Uh, you and I have talked about that privately for a number of years, that there's some sort of, uh, uh, of championing of, of, of uh, anti-Russian Ukrainianism um, in, in Ukraine, domestic, in Ukraine domestic politics among people in the Democratic Party. I think the neoconservatives are also very interested in that, and there, there's this convergence of, of, of uh, neoconservatives and neoliberals who are opposed to, uh, to Russia uh, as a general concept. So that, 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 that's... Uh, of uh, 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 point of unity. Although I again have to say something that would probably separate the neoconservatives from the neoliberals is the neoconservatives 
um, I think a lot of them are Jewish. They're focused on anti-Semitism. And uh, they have all these ideological problems with Trump, but they flat out, a lot of them just think Trump's anti-Semitic. They just think he's um, dangerous to their, to, their, uh, to their ethnicity, and they're not wrong, okay? I mean, the, the, the fact is, Trump, Trump may always, and Trump supporters may always hide behind the fact that Jared Kushner uh, is his son-in-law and he's Jewish, right? And he's an Orthodox Jew. But um, the, the language that Trump uses so often, um, the language that the coded language there is, there is dripping, and it's been dripping. And the neoconservatives were the first people to point this out in 2016. Is dripping with anti-Semitic code, which is meant to 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 to, to wind up certain you know, uh, white Protestant people in, in deep red America. Um, and that, that is undeniable if you're objective about it. And they feel that very strongly. So while I have all these kind of ideological questions about them in term, and their motivations in terms of foreign policy, et cetera, I, I will say that I think a lot of their, their strong opposition to Trump, which then goes into things like the Lincoln Project, um, has to do with flat out that a lot of them are Jewish and they very rightly are threatened by a guy who's, whether he's personally anti-Semitic or not, I, I don't know, but he certainly um, he certainly gives aid and comfort to anti-Semites in this country. I don't think that you can you can even argue that he clearly does. <clears throat> well, uh, for sure, we've got some. Uh, uh, I think that as the torch is passed, and I I I, I didn't think this a few weeks ago. I do think that. Uh, unless something really changes, I think that chances are uh, Trump is going to win this election just based on on uh, COVID and, and and his handling of all that. But well, you uh, mean the what? You mean you mean Biden's going to win? That's right, Biden's going to win. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. I did, but the Biden's going to win, and uh, you know that's that's going to open all of this up. And and, and I think that we're going to be talking a lot more about uh, these neoconservatives in in the near future. So I'm glad that we have this kind of set up. You know that that we've uh, you know done some some definitions and. And the audience kind of knows what we're talking about, and we'll, we will definitely be taking it from there. And if Biden isn't elected, I mean, these operators, these 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 players are still, uh, uh, you know, part of the game. You know, uh, yeah. You know, Trump's Trump's going to make moves to either placate them or to uh, piss them off, and you know, we'll we'll see how that goes. But. Um, Kardik, I want to thank you so much for coming on and uh, sharing tonight, especially the, the uh, uh, well, just everything. But I, this update on COVID is so valuable to me, and your specific <clears throat> view, your your very special viewpoint from the perspective of sports and professional sports, I think is is just. Uh, critical right now because you know, especially in Central Florida, you know, we're we are going to be, uh, uh, you know, anybody who's trying to get a test is already dealing with a uh, with the backlash from all of that. So we will see, we will see how all of that goes on, and uh, let's keep talking about this uh, 
um, other project, you know, the neoconservative, neo neoliberal project, uh, as as we go. Absolutely. Well, th thanks much, and, and uh, have a great rest of the show. You too. And folks, you can find Kardec on Twitter. Just search for Kardec Krishnire. He, um, uh, are you still there? Yeah, it's at KKFLA737. Awesome. Thank you. I never remember that. Um, so look him up on Twitter, <clears throat> open DMs, and uh, let's uh, keep the dialogue open. And we'll talk to you real soon, Carter. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, you guys. Wow. Um, so one thing I wanted to bring up really quick before we bring Janine on, and to set it up really well, is that what we saw this week with the uh, – Handling of Bounty Gate. Uh, and, and for those who don't know, the Los Angeles Times reported Thursday night that a complete withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan is just off the table now. And the reason why is that there's been a leak uh, to, to media, these unnamed intelligence official and or officials, uh, that there was an intelligence finding briefed to the president uh, here's the exact wording. Uh, intelligence finding was briefed to the president, Trump, and the White House's National Security Council discussed the problem of an interagency meeting in late March, the officials said. Officials developed a menu of potential options, stating, uh, starting with making a diplomatic complaint to Moscow and then escalating that, blah, blah, blah. But the White House has yet to authorize any steps, the official said. Um, I believe what we're seeing here with with the emergence of, of this so-called bounty gate is just very odd. So first of all, the allegation is that the Kremlin is paying a bounty to for uh, uh, the Mujahideen to kill American soldiers. Well, we're in a war and they're already killing them. So, I mean, like, that's not like the greatest enticement in the world, but there's also lots of really odd things going on in here. And, you know, we don't have time to get into it right now, but a big question is uh, why hasn't CIA director Gina Haspel uh, demanded or been in front of president Trump to brief him on this specifically. Now, where the, the New York Times story leaves off is it, it makes it sound like a presidential daily briefing was dropped on his desk. And of course, Trump doesn't read anything if it doesn't have um, uh, pictures uh, on it. And even then, uh, and so, and so the, the language is super weak. You know, they say things like, uh, here's a quote, though the United States has accused Russia of providing general support to the Taliban there, analysts concluded from other intelligence that the transfers of money were most likely part of a bounty program uh, that detainees described during interrogation. So they're saying that they did enhance interrogations. They're saying that these bounty programs were most likely uh, being used for uh, for this, that, and the other. There's no evidence of any of it. But what we do know is that there are people who are within the Pentagon who very much want this story to get out and wanted it to get out in this way. Now, I'm thinking that these neoconservatives that, that we've been talking about and you know, 
plenty of neoconservative uh, goodness within the uh, Jeffrey Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell uh, mess. I think that you're seeing people starting to maneuver behind the scenes. They're always maneuvering behind the scenes, but you're starting to see it now. And some of this is going to become clearer as we go forward. Uh, this bounty gate came right at the moment when Bush was trying to take 4,000 troops out of Afghanistan. And he wanted to do that. Uh, they say, according to the article, that, you know, this is part of an election year pledge and yada, yada, yada. Uh, the flip side of that is no matter what Donald Trump wanted, whether it was for his election or for, for world peace or whatever it may be, but now it's world peace, uh, what the intelligence, what people within the, the Pentagon and people within intelligence did was to put the story out there to st with the effect of stoking the flames against Russia. Because now it's personal. Now Russia has personally put a bounty on the heads of American soldiers, blah, 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 blah. As if when you're in theater, in uh, combat, you don't already, you weren't already, you know, in danger or something. But anyway, all of that, all of that is maneuvering. All of that is, is uh, uh, people who are dug in you know that have that have been in in military or and or intelligence and or diplomacy for decades and decades and they've always run the show and they're still kind of running the show and they want to really 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 run the show like legit as soon as they possibly freaking can um and i i'm not sure that anyone can say at this point if these, these, these neoconservatives aren't aren't really uh, already helping Trump do his thing, you know. And then you got folks on the back end going, "No, he's not doing what we want him to." Um, the bottom line is Trump's being outmaneuvered. He's being outmaneuvered by his own military people, by his own intelligence people. And also by this Lincoln project, these ex-McCain staffers, these old Bush administration people who have decided that to back Joe Biden. That's very interesting because these are foreign policy guys. So I am very interested to see where this foreign policy trajectory takes us, where this Ghislaine Maxwell stuff takes us. And in a few minutes, I am super excited to hear where Janine Moloff has to take us with uh, criminalizing dissent and uh, in the justice report. We will have her in just a moment.
right, I think we got Janine. Oh, no lie. Hey, Janine. Hey, Brooke. How are you tonight? Happy Sunday. I am wonderful. It's so <laughs> great to hear you, and I can't wait to hear your report. So uh, let's get right oh, into it. You. I'm going to get right into it. This has to do with the Mount Rushmore visit as well. Just yesterday, Trump visited Mount Rushmore and read off the teleprompter about the importance of maintaining national monuments. Now, the deeper story lies with the fact that Trump and his cohorts were officially weaponizing white privilege while simultaneously planning this pseudo-legal lynch mob against any dissent. So I'm going to give you a quote for it that describes initially how toxic leaders like Trump are, that are determined to destroy democratic rule, how they view lying and the subsequent need to criminalize any dissent in order to keep the truth from seeping into the public consciousness. The two things go hand in hand. Now, I'm paraphrasing some of it and directly quoting the remaining part of the entire passage, but I'm not going to tell you the source of the quote until the end of the report. Here it is. Regarding the nature of lies, a lie can be maintained only, quote, only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political, economic, and or military consequences of the lie. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all of its powers to repress dissent, for the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie, and thus, by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. Again, you'll find out at the end of the report who I'm quoting. Trump must have channeled this other author since childhood, ironically a state of being which he never seemed to have left, by the way. So yesterday, on the 4th of July, Trump and his entire vapid entourage visited Mount Rushmore while he bleated on about the cosmic battle for patriotism and the vicious far left. The speech was filled with misinformation and, frankly, in my opinion, some blatant lies, but his supporters ate it up like junkies on methamphetamines. The truly dangerous part of the speech wasn't merely the obvious incitement value against anyone daring to disagree with the what I call the insane emperor, but the not-so-thinly-veiled threats to criminalize all sorts of behavior connected with the First Amendment, but also labeling anyone who dares to dissent as a traitor. To further attack excuse me, the very idea of justice by pushing for and establishing long prison sentences for, prison, for misdemeanor behavior, such as defacing a monument or a presidential signing statement. Once again, we see the danger of the unitary executive hyphen king. Now, the Guardian reported, and here and it was David Smith in Washington for the Guardian, and the title is U.S. Under Siege from Far-Left Fascism, says Trump in Mount Rushmore speech. U.S. President inflames national tensions with attack on left-wing revolution and plan for national memorial statues of American heroes. That's the headline. So Donald Trump, you know, under the banner of basically a large flag holding Melania's hand, basically said the U.S. is being attacked from far-left fascists, and he did so at Mount Rushmore. And again, what better backdrop? So basically, this was a celebration of what many critics called out as, quote, white identity politics. And I agree with those critics. The president defended the, the symbolism of various statues and monuments, uh, including those of Confederates. And 
this was calculated. This was really meant to inflame anybody who disagrees with the Trumpers. Uh, during this entire event, uh, the Guardian reported that they didn't spot very many people wearing face masks at all. And there were a few face masks and even a smaller number of people of color either in the stands watching or on stage. Our nation is witnessing a mercilessly, mer- I'm sorry, merciless campaign to wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values, and indoctrinate our children. He went on this quote, um, quoting him saying, quote, angry mobs, mobs are trying to tear down statues of our founders, deface our most sacred memorials, and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities, end quote. Now, the last time I checked, once you make that kind of an overgeneralized statement, you need some facts, which he doesn't supply. He just goes on to say he talks about his National Garden of Heroes, um, which is, I'm sure, going to provoke controversy as well. So we go on with this, and basically Trump went on to say, uh, you know, that our schools have become these you know, these bastions of far-left fascism and so on and so forth. Now, while this is going on, there were protesters blocking the road leading to Mount Rushmore, and the mainstream media didn't talk about it much, but they were mostly Native, Native Indigenous people from the Lakota tribe, and they were protesting South Dakota's Black Hills that they were taking away. Uh, basically, the Lakota people were protesting the fact that their sacred land, the South Dakota Black Hills, was basically stolen from them against established treaty agreements. They also objected to Trump and his celebrating American independence, once again, on sacred ground, to the Lakota sacred ground. There were about 15 protesters that were arrested uh, because they missed what the Guardian called, quote, a police-imposed deadline to leave. You know, the last time I checked, the First Amendment also established a right to just be present. Since when do the police have a right to establish deadlines and make you leave? Now, the Democratic National Committee, which has been <clears throat> kind of AWOL, did tweet that Trump had disrespected the Lakota tribe and that his the trip to Mount Rushmore was, quote, glorifying white supremacy. Unfortunately, the Democratic National Committee lost its courage and then deleted the tweet. All right. So I decided to look at Trump's actual speech, and I have the transcript in front of me. And basically, in this speech, the president made several erroneous remarks, but let's look at some of the most inflammatory and, frankly, incendiarily racist. Trump greeted the crowds like a true reality TV host, show host, but not like a president. He thanked the crowd, the Blue Angels Aviation Group, various GOP politicians, etc. He spoke about those historic figures commemorated on Mount Rushmore and the monument itself, and he called Mount Rushmore itself, quote, a monument to the greatest Americans who ever lived, end quote. So Trump gave his followers plenty of political red meat as he heralded Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt, and in traditional fashion, presenting them as idols to be worshipped without question. And then Trump drew his metaphorical line in the sand as he declared from his perch as self-appointed king, a self-appointed evil king of the world, that, quote, 
this monument will never be desecrated. These heroes will never be defaced. Their legacy will never, ever, even ever be destroyed, et cetera, et cetera, end quote. And the, the crowd in between each statement was chanting USA, USA. He pontificated further, and again, he glorified the uh, founding fathers, but once again, no mention of the full history, including the systemic historic hypocrisy exhibited by the white Christian majority. But Trump lead it on, um, and he had the audacity to even say, quote, our founders launched not only a revolution in government, but a revolution in the pursuit of justice, equality, liberty, and prosperity. He went on, end quote. He went on to say, quote, no nation has ever has done more to advance the human condition than the United States of America, and no people have done more to promote human progress than the citizens of our great nation, end quote. Once again, as Trump and his minions embrace the mantle of alleged color blindness, he has the audacity to basically celebrate the statement, all men are created equal. Uh, you know, once again, this is something where he attri- it blows the mind. He went on to attribute uh, how basically, quote, 1776 represented the culmination of thousands of years of Western civilization and the triumph not only of spirit, but of wisdom, philosophy, and reason, end quote. Now, whoever Trump's speechwriters were, they worded it very nicely. It's too bad it just wasn't the truth. Many of these philosophical schools of thought credited to the white Christian Western Enlightenment didn't actually originate with those Enlightenment thinkers. Even the concept of the golden rule, a.k.a. treat others as you'd like to be treated, originated in the Middle East with the ancient Jews. Jesus preached from the Jewish holy book, the Torah, and not from anything the English King James commissioned. The wisdom of Hillel the Elder was co-opted by white men of privilege. Once again, ancient wisdom from Asia and the Middle East has been co-opted or stolen by white Europeans. But I digress. Back to the enfant terrible and his audience of overaged infants. It's at this point that Trump identifies and paints a very lethal target on his political opponents by demonizing any dissent. Here it begins. So he talks about how, quote, angry mobs are trying to tear down statues of our fathers, deface our most sacred memorials, and unleash a wave of violent crime in our cities, end quote again. Now, Trump omits the inconvenient truth that much of the violence in the recent uh, protests came from police brutality. Uh, he goes on to talk then about the cancel culture drivel part of the speech. I swear Ivanka must be smiling. Now, Trump goes on to say, quote, one of the political weapons of the left is, quote, cancel culture, end quote. Um, and he talks about how they drive people, quote, drive people from their jobs, shaming dissenters and demanding total submission from anyone who disagrees, end quote. Sidebar. Some of us would merely acknowledge these actions on Trump's laundry list of alleged sins against white Christian masters, which is merely a form of social moral ostracism of those who have a history of persecuting racial, religious, and gender minorities is just fighting back for a change. So the Donald demonstrated his clear ignorance. He calls out the rights of the oppressed to ostracize their oppressors as, quote, the very definition of totalitarianism. So the idea that the oppressed are fighting back is now, as long as they're on the political left, is now, quote, the very definition of totalitarianism, end quote, according to Trump. I hate to tell him this, but newsflash, Donald, it isn't. But he doesn't understand it. Then he goes on to demonize the public schools, the press, and especially the far left. 
and he accuses the far left of, and any anti-fascist, anti-racist groups of de facto treason, once again libeling entire groups of people and providing no facts. He goes on to talk about how, you know, again, he's defacing a statue is somehow evil. Now, here's the thing. In Trump world, apparently defacing a statue of known Confederates, Confederates is tantamount in Trump's slow-witted noggin to address attack on democracy itself. But here's the thing that's really dangerous. Trump's declaration that criminalizes petty misdemeanors the best. And here's, here's what he says. Quote, this is why I'm deploying federal law enforcement to protect our monuments, arrest the rioters, and prosecute offenders to the fullest extent of the law. End quote. So what this translates into, according to, and he basically declares, quote, under the executive order I signed last week pertaining to the Veterans Memorial Preservation and Recognition Act and other laws, people who damage or deface federal statutes or monuments will get a minimum of 10 years in prison. So, end quote. So apparently if you feel like defacing the statue of President Andrew Jackson, the man who led a genocide against entire indigenous tribes with a trail of tears, get ready, you're going to get a minimum of 10 years in prison for what is a misdemeanor. Then he goes on and he demonizes Democrats. He lies about what's ta taught in schools. He talks about how, quote, the radical view of American history is a web of lies um, and that basically our children are taught in school to hate their own country and believe that the men and women who built it were not heroes, but that they were the villains, end quote. Trump goes on to give the ultimate laundry list of achievements coming from the figures commemorated on Mount Rushmore next. Now, what he and his followers refuse to see is that the far left doesn't debate the achievements of these past presidents. We debate the revisionist version of history that omits the crimes of these same extremely gifted individuals. Attaining great achievements is not synonymous with morality. It never was, and it never will be. But then the Donald has rarely been worried about any morality. Like a spoiled infant screaming because he has a dirty diaper, Trump blames everyone else for the gift, for the alleged gift, if you will, emanating from his anal sphincter. He calls upon the name of Lincoln, talking about how he end, abolished slavery for all times. Now the problem is that Trump and his minions have practically deified the Confederacy, and now they want to look like they're colorblind, which is a way of refuting that any racism and any crimes against uh, communities of color ever existed. Then you have more Trump verbal excrement, all right? Um, he states here, quote, we will state in truth without apology, we declare the United States of America is the most just and exceptional nation ever to exist on earth, end quote. My response is tell that to the descendants of slaves or migrants denied equal justice under the law. Then he goes on and he talks about how the country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles and these values have advanced the cause of peace and justice. The only problem is that the majority of the major founding fathers, including Jefferson, weren't Christian or Jewish. They were either deists, which is the equivalent of agnosticism, or they were atheists. And then he goes on and he talks about how we have to take care of America first. Once again, this MAGA slogan originated with Nazi sympathizers, but there's more cynical lies, more propaganda. Um, you know, again, he goes on to say 
and I, it's hard to admit this, quote, we believe in equal opportunity, equal justice, and equal treatment for citizens of every race, background, religion, and creed. Okay, every child of every color, born and unborn, is made in the holy image of God, end quote. And this came from Trump's mouth. I don't know what America he thinks he lives in. Um, and then he goes on to say, we want free and open debate, quote, not speech codes and cancel culture, end quote. P.S., Donald, you need to understand free and open debate Debate includes the right to ostracize those who attack you, and it equally includes the right to challenge the hate speech coming from the MAGA brigades. And then he went on to say something that I almost hurled on, quote, we embrace tolerance, not prejudice, end quote. I, I nearly lost my lunch on that one. It was so ludicrous. But here's the most dangerous part of the speech, treading very close to accusing the left or any political critics of treasonous sedition. Quote, those who seek to erase our heritage want America to forget our pride and our great dignity. Um, and he goes on to say, um, in toppling the heroes of 1776, they seek to dissolve the bonds of love and loyalty that we feel for our country and feel for each other. Their goal is not to better America. Their goal is the end of America, end quote, the audience food. Um, he actually, this is demonizing anyone who dares to dissent. He invoked the name of Martin Luther King. I mean, he used every token you could find. He spoke of manifest destiny, destiny as, a, as something good, not, not understanding that the, this was a philosophy used to justify stealing land and enslaving others. He tokenized the memory not only of Martin Luther King, but of Tuskegee Airmen, Harriet Tubman, uh, Jesse Owens, Louis Armstrong, Muhammad Ali again, just to tokenize and make himself look good. And then he talked about his garden of statues, more dead monuments. Propaganda event just chock full of half-truths and just blatant lies. I thought his followers should better understand what tyranny is. It's obvious their buddy, Trump, enjoys being the tyrant. What isn't so obvious is how such tyranny emerges. Author and leftist Naomi Wolf outlined 10 steps taken by would-be tyrants that lead to the closing down of a democracy in her book, the End of America, letter, to, letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. Here they are and see if they look familiar. Invoking a terrifying exter internal and external enemy. Creating secret prisons where torture takes place. Developing a thug cast, a para paramilitary force not answerable to citizens. Setting up an internal surveillance system. Infiltrate and harass citizens groups. Engage in arbitrary detention and release. Target key individuals. Control the press. Cast criticism as espionage. And dissent is treason, and he certainly did that in this Mount Rushmore speech, and then subvert the law, rule of law, which he has been going through his AG. Sound familiar? It should. Now you have the American Constitution Society that's basically, in 2018, Timothy Zick, who's the John Marshall Professor of Government and Citizenship for the William Mary Law School, um, basically challenged Trump on these core First Amendment issues. And among other things, you know, basically Zick said that he has endangered the press. And to quote Zick, he said, quote, a free press is not a threat to democracy, but a condition for sustaining it. And the idea that Trump kept calling the press the enemy of the people is nothing short of treason on the part of a president. He cited the 1931 decision that allowed more press freedoms. Um, he, Professor Zick cited James Madison, who was the First Amendment architect, who said, quote, censorial power is in the people over the government, 
not in the government over the people. Um, Madison fought the sedition, ironically, the Sedition Act of 1798, which ironically mirrors Trump's attempts to silence dissent. We heard not so thinly veiled threats in his, in, in his Mount Rushmore speech. Madison railed against the Sedition Act, and this was a 17. And what this act did, it imposed criminal penalties for publishing or communicating statements about the president of the federal government that would bring either into contempt or disrepute or incite hatred toward them. Um, you know, he they mentioned the 1964 Sullivan decision that really changed the cent- what they called the central meaning of the First Amendment, uh, where basically you can't be sued because, you know, you were critical of the government. Maybe you made some mistakes in reporting. Um, Justice Jackson, but I'm, I'm skipping ahead of this, sorry. Um, and so, you know, this goes on and on. The Supreme Court realized that, once again, you can't, label people as traitors just because they disagree with you. Um, And so this is something that we are still dealing with. So when I look at what Trump did in his little speech, this isn't cancel culture, as Trump and his speechwriters claim. This is historic revisionism, and and such revisionism that constitutes an oasis for bigots who want to wrap themselves up in the flag and accessorize it with the mantle of humanitarian justice. It is neither. Trump's recent executive order demanding serious jail time for anyone who defaces a monument is out of line. It is unconstitutional. Apparently, the GOP cares more about stone idols than they do the living Constitution. If Trump is allowed to further criminalize behavior that should be nothing more than a misdemeanor, He has proven that D.C. is nothing more than the new graveyard of democracy, uh, a cemetery of democracy, if you will, a place where dead stone idols are more valued than the people. By the way, and then we're going to discuss this a little more afterwards, here is the entire quote that was featured at the beginning of this report. If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. The lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political, economic, and or military consequences of the lie. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all its powers to repress dissent. For the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie, and thus by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. And this quote really encapsulizes what is Trumpism, what is his his entire re-election strategy, what is his appeal to basically white supremacists and neo-Nazis. So the author of this particular quote is quite appropriate. The speaker, who I quoted, is the Minister of Propaganda for the Nazi Third Reich, Joseph Goebbels. That's my report. Yes. Yes. Hello. Okay. I'm, I'm here. <laughs> so That's because I, I have a my lot mic to off. cover. Yeah, there was a lot to cover, and you know, it's clear during this Mount Rushmore speech that Trump was targeting the left and painting them as traitors, and that is an incredibly dangerous event. And 
very few of the mainstream media called them out on it. They should have. Yeah. They didn't. They should have. And, uh, and you know, there's just so much in there. The cancel culture stuff was just absurd. It's a misappropriation of a not well understood uh, uh, pop culture reference. Uh, you know, is it, Trump just kind of vomits up this, this mixed bag of, of uh, uh, gobbledygook. And, you know, the people who don't know any better, uh, or who are being hoodwinked by it, uh, you know, latch on to cancel culture and, right. you know, the dirty leftists and this, that, and well, the other. But that's certainly not what's and, going and what, on. And what's scary about this is that he used so much tokenism. This is an instance where racists took the idea that, quote, they are colorblind. Now, when you claim you're colorblind, it doesn't mean you're not racist. It means you're refusing to see the past and present crimes as they are, crimes against humanity. That's what racism is, and a denial of true justice. And so they take this colorblindness, and then they give some tokenism so that basically these neo-Nazis can look like mm-hmm. they're the good guys. This is a twisted, and it, it's so reminiscent of what Goebbels did under Hitler, it is not even funny. I, I mean, it is, it just, it, it's beyond the pale. It's uh, once again, the people, yeah, well, and the thing is this, the idea of cancel culture, the idea that basically the victims, the targets of oppression have the audacity to stand up and fight back, which is their right. This enrages them more. This is white this is weaponizing white privilege uh, on steroids. Absolutely. And he just took it a step further, and it is a disgrace. Uh, and, and, you know, once again, this is something we can't allow. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's just beyond the pale. And so when you look at this, when he tries to literally align himself with Dr. King, Okay? Because he wants the politically correct king. He wants the Dr. King from the I Have a Dream speech instead of letter from a Birmingham jail. Right. Well, right? a lot of people and do. This, and, yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We are running out the clock. I've only got 30 seconds. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I got in and, and was able to say thank you so much for such a uh, a, a great review of this awful thing that we all had to witness. Uh, and I, as always, look forward to next week. And, uh, and y'all stay tuned for the Environmental Justice Report. And uh, I'm going to leave you guys right. with Thursday uh, at 730. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Thursday, 7.30, and I'm going to leave you guys with uh, 7.30 p.m. Central Time. It would be 8.30 Eastern Time. Okay. Um, All right, then. And I am going to leave you guys with a a little clip from Awkward, who joined us last week, uh, because this is totally appropriate. Um, And uh, we will see you guys uh, later. About to blow up from a nuclear bomb. I'm about to show up, got the right to bear arms. If we don't all die tomorrow, I'ma come for them blondes. Take the torch, hold them motherfuckers right in your wrongs. Nazis marching on the streets, and Nazis in charge. There's even Nazis on these beats, and Nazis on the blog. 
questioning me I got the motherfucking scars And it could have been me Who got crushed by that car American free It's white man free for all I'ma tell you the truth I got that white skin card I never sat back and said Oh thank God Oh God I cried looking out my backyard Should have been there too Smash Nazis for the cause And I used to do that But now my kids are my job And thanks to my wife I got the time to spit bars This'll cost my paycheck Getting stalked by my boss Fuck Trump Fuck the system that made him Fuck afraid pundits and the lives you praise him Fuck you white apologists, privilege is amazing I know you won't acknowledge the world you were raised in Fuck Trump, fuck the system that made him Fuck afraid pundits and the lives you praise him Fuck you white apologists, privilege is amazing I know you won't acknowledge the world you were raised in Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.